welcome to Legally Speaking with Music and Music. I'm your host, Joanne Music. In the studio today, I have Earl Music, my father-in-law partner. How are you? Good. We also have John in the studio. How are you, John? I'm good. Just back from the frozen north where it was raining and 40 degrees yesterday. Yeah. I was going to say, welcome back. You've missed a couple shows with us, a little vacation in the way. Had to run up home, check on my mom. That's a good thing. Um, glad you could do that, and glad you're back with us today. We've got a couple things we want to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to, as best as I can, leave that whole election alone, um, <laughs> even though I have a feeling it might creep in. I want to start off with something that came out this week, um, some more prosecutorial misconduct. I know a couple uh, shows ago, or maybe it was last show, I can't even remember now, we talked about a case out of Harris County, uh, the Headley case with uh, prosecutor Rob Fryer, who's now up in Montgomery County, who had um, concealed some uh, Brady information. And for our listeners, Brady information is uh, that evidence that's required to be turned over from the state to the defense information or evidence that tends to exculpate uh, the defendant or mitigates their punishment or even leads to some uh, impeachment of witnesses. So things that would help the defense are required to be turned over so that those can be explored and utilized if if necessary. Um, On the heels of that case coming out of the Court of Criminal Appeals last week, um, we get the McGregor case out of Fort Bend County. A couple of things that are unique about this case is that McGregor had two cases pending, uh, two murder cases as it turns out, one in Fort Bend County, one in Harris County. The prosecutor in the Harris County case, uh, Beth Shipley Exley, decided or, or was asked, I don't know how it came about, but because the cases shared some witnesses, the, it was decided that she would go to Fort Bend and try the case with the Fort Bend prosecutor. Um, so we have a Harris County prosecutor going over to Fort Bend County and being co-counsel on the prosecution case over there. The idea, as I've understood it from reading some of the uh, interviews in this case, uh, specifically an interview with uh, Beth Shipley by the writ lawyer, uh, Randy Schaefer, Um, she was involved because she was going to handle some of the um, witnesses. And those witnesses happened to have pending cases in Harris County, Texas. Um, Being the Harris County prosecutor, having the companion murder case out of Harris County, Beth went to Fort Bend to help try the case. So McGregor gets convicted. And this week, Judge Shoemake, out of the three... Uh, the 434th District Court over in Fort Bend actually recommended that McGregor get a new trial, uh, recommended habeas corpus relief because the state suppressed evidence that witnesses were receiving a benefit for their testimony and that the state presented false testimony in order to obtain that conviction. And when I say presented false testimony, what we're talking about in this particular instance is each of the three witnesses that received deals from Beth Shipley were also testified that they had not gotten any type of deal in exchange for their testimony. 
so as she put them on the stand, they said they did not get a deal. She failed to correct that, and she allowed the false testimony to stand. That's Judge Shoemake uh, making that recommendation for relief based on the suppression of evidence. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, sort of some background here. And you guys, if you want to jump in, jump in at any well, point. Let me, let me clarify some things real quick for the, for the readers, uh, for the listeners, actually. Um, the it was brought to the court um, because they believed that the state withheld uh, information which they're required by the law to do. Uh, also, they they found, like jo- Joanne said, the witnesses testified falsely on the witness stand. The prosecutor knew that they, that they were giving false testimony and failed to correct that. Uh, after a long hearing, uh, the judge ruled that those things actually did happen, and because they did happen, the conviction could not stand. Um, and as I understand it, it was a circumstantial case that uh, these three witnesses uh, that that testified were necessary uh, in order for the state to come forward. Being a circumstantial case, relying on those three witnesses, their testimony was extremely important. If they were promised deals, or even implied that they were going to get a deal for their testimony, as long as their testimony helped the state, that, that's a pretty big incentive for them. Yeah, absolutely. And what 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 it looks like is that each of the cases, the Fort Bend murder and the Harris County murder, in each of those cases, they, the state had what we would call circumstantial evidence cases, meaning no direct witness to say, yes, McGregor committed this murder because I saw it. No, no video, um, no video, no um, scientific evidence, uh, only circumstantial evidence. Uh, now, I do understand there was some sort of DNA evidence uh, but that DNA evidence, again, was also uh, recognized to be um, entirely circumstantial because McGregor did know these people that were that ended up murdered. And so the fact that his DNA was located at the particular location, which was, uh, I believe, one of the homes, um, wasn't enough to put a time frame that his DNA was left there at the time of the murder. Yeah. So. Go ahead, John. Well, I'm just, and of course, we don't have benefit of the trial transcript. And I'm curious uh, how hard the defense pushed on any promises in that. Because I'm always sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, I'm sitting here as a juror on this murder case. And here's this guy charged with aggravated robbery. And it doesn't come out at all why he's testifying. I mean, you just sit there and think. Well, and is the, it out of the goodness of his heart he's up here, this well, boy scout? And you bring up a really good point there, John, because, one, how hard did the defense push? From right. from what I've read, the defense pushed pretty hard. Okay. The defense filed motions pretrial saying, you know, the state, state, do you have any deals with these witnesses? The state's response was no. Prior to the trial starting, there were some conversations um, between and this is brought out in the habeas testimony, um, that the trial attorney spoke to both prosecutors, the Fort Bend prosecutor as well as uh, 
Ms. Shipley, the Harris County prosecutor who was assisting in the case, spoke to them personally, look, or, did any of these witnesses get a deal? The answer, again, was no. And I believe um, there was testimony from the witnesses that they received no deal. Well, I'll say, and that's where I'm headed, too, is that and during cross-examination, uh, the trial attorney just could not believe there were no deals. So the, the trial attorney asked these witnesses, you know, what deal did you get here you know, to testify here today? Uh, and all of these witnesses said, oh, we didn't get a deal at all. Um, during the habeas hearing, the, the well, first let me back up for a second. We're talking about three witnesses. Um, I can't remember her first name. Gable, Dolores Gable, Marvin Paxton, and Adam Osani. Dolores Gable was serving time in prison for her own offense. Uh, I don't remember the offense, but she was serving time in prison. She came forward to the state and said, look, I've got information about this murder if you can help me parole. And prosecutors, and I believe an FBI agent earlier, prior an FBI agent had met with Gable and got this information. Then prosecutors, and it was uh, Miss Shipley, that went to meet with Dolores Gable in prison. Gable, uh, Shipley and her investigator, uh, Bob uh, Vernier, went to TDC and sat down and met with her. Bob and Beth Shipley both testified during the habeas hearing that they met with Miss Gable, but they specifically told Miss Gable, look, I can't promise you anything. I can't promise you parole. The best I could ever do for you is maybe write a letter to parole telling them that you helped me, but I can't even promise you that'll do any good. Okay? So, um, but Gable uh, decided she would testify um, in exchange for this potential help to get a letter that would help her parole. There are a lot. There's a lot of evidence that was introduced in the trial. Some uh, transcripts, some uh, documents. Gable had had been writing and corresponding with her own lawyer. She had a parole lawyer at the time helping her get out, um, and said to her parole lawyer in in a letter, um, "Miss Miss Shipley is going to write a letter on my behalf. Can you help me with that?" And so the lawyers, you know, between Gable's lawyer and Beth Shipley, they had some conversations, um, and they, um, she decided she would testify. Now, here's what's very interesting about Gable's testimony at trial. Gable testified that she came forward out of the goodness of her heart. So it's funny you say that, John. Like, did, did these people just come forward out of the goodness of their heart? Yeah. Gable said, I came forward out of the goodness of my heart because I now have cancer and I feel bad and I don't want to die with this on my head. Um, when I was, when, when we were all in the neighborhood, um, McGregor was talking to my husband and he confessed and I heard that confession. So Gable said, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm coming here to testify. She was cross-examined vigorously about whether or not she had a deal. She denied having a deal at all. Now, move forward, well, move forward to the writ hearing, and then I'll go back to the other witnesses. Um, at the writ hearing, Gable, there was testimony that Gable never had cancer, 
Gable was never married, so there couldn't have been a husband that got conf- that had a confession. Um, and she never had cancer, so she de- wasn't doing this as a deathbed deathbed wish to clear her conscience. Um, plus, she had a deal from Beth. Uh, Shipley to write a letter. So let's move on then to Marvin Paxton. Paxton had been charged with five aggravated robberies Uh, in a plea deal that was unrelated to this testimony. Paxton cut a deal for to plead guilty to two of those aggravated robberies with while three of those aggravated robberies got dismissed. Sounds like a you know, pretty decent deal. Sure. It's a run of the mill, run of the mill kind of deal that happens in Harris County all the time. Uh, they had a deal with the prosecutor in that at that time that he would be capped at forty five years. Now, what that means is he would enter a plea of guilty. Punishment range is five to life, but that by agreement the judge could give him no more than forty five years. But the judge could give anywhere between five and forty-five, um, with I guess the possibility of uh, some kind of deferred probation as well. At, suddenly, that deal got put on hold, and his sentencing was rescheduled. He testified uh, in the grand jury, I believe, and then he testified at trial. After the trial in the case. After the trial in the case, his deal miraculously became a plea to a robbery instead of an aggravated robbery and a flat seven years where he would be eligible for parole in quarter time. Um, And robbery is not... 3G? His robbery is not 3G. It's not a 3G offense, so it's a quarter-time parole. With an aggravated robbery, we're talking about an aggravated offense, what we call a 3G offense, comes from the penal code with uh, 4212 section 3G. But um, 3G means that they have to serve at least one half of their sentence before they're eligible for parole. So and, the reduction... And it's a deadly weapons finding as well. Well, it's it's an aggravated, yeah, it could be the deadly weapon, but an aggravated robbery is a um, 3G. It's a 3G either way, even without a deadly weapon. Yes. But, so he makes a deal, and then he testifies, then all of a sudden his deal becomes even better than the cap at 45, and he gets seven on a lesser included charge. Um, He, too, was asked on cross-examination if he had gotten a deal, and he said no as well. Um, Adam Osani had been charged with a uh, family violence case. It was a felony. Originally, he had a plea deal for a deferred adjudication probation. Uh, that deal was busted by the trial court, meaning the trial court decided he wasn't that the court wasn't going to honor that plea deal. The court thought that was too lenient, and so. His case got set for trial. On the eve of trial, Osani came forward and told his lawyer, hey, look, I, I know this guy that confessed to murder. Can we use that and help to help me out? I should mention, and I didn't say this earlier, Gable's sitting over in prison, and her story was that McGregor had confessed before she'd ever gone to prison when they were out in the neighborhood. Paxton and Osani both were serving time in the Harris County Jail they were in the same tank as McGregor, so they became the jailhouse snitches that overheard supposedly this um, confession. So Osani on the eve of trial says, "Hey, look, I, I want to be the jailhouse snitch, right? Yeah. Um, 
And let me uh, interrupt just for a minute uh, to make sure that the listeners understand. Um, when you're in jail, especially um, on a robbery charge where you're facing a cap, the judge can sentence you anywhere up to 45 years, uh, and you've already agreed and pled, and um, now you're waiting sentencing, um, you're going to look around and, and try to find anything that might help you. Uh, these are not the most honest individuals in the world. Uh, you've got two people in jail. They're seeking a deal from the prosecutor. They come forward and miraculously, the defendant who happened to be in jail at the same time they were, confessed to them. Right. He to them, the out, of, out of all people in the jail, Picked he came forward to these two people, gave a confession, and, oh, guess what, State? We can sure help you when, and tell you about this confession, but only if you'll help me. And you could see the incentive that the State might have not wanting to tell the court, not wanting to tell the, the defense lawyers that, hey, we offered them a deal for this testimony. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the state doesn't like to have to admit that they cut a deal. Um, I mean, they're, they're required to. Uh, the Brady case says they are. The Giglio case says they are. Uh, the the Mort Michael Morton Act says they are. The ethics rules say they are. Every piece of law uh, in, in Texas and the United States says that prosecutors have to disclose this type of information. Um, but here we have, you know, prosecutor that's decided to play fast and loose with the rules. Um, and so you've got... Paxton and Osani, who are sitting in jail, you know, Osani comes forward on the eve of his plea deal, I mean, on the eve of his trial and cuts this deal. Um, turns out that he ended up cutting a deal that got him a misdemeanor instead of a felony and got him time served. So just a couple of days after testifying for the state, he was released from jail. Um, now, I want to get into some really specific stuff about why all this is so bad and and how Shipley handled this. So we're going to do that as soon as we come back from the break. We're going to take a quick break here. Remember, you can call us if you have any questions or comments. 281-447. And welcome back. This is Legally Speaking with Music and Music. I'm your host, Joanne Music, in the studio today with Earl Music and John Denholm. Uh, what want to remind our listeners kind of what we were talking about and um, get right into the meat of this. There is a case that uh, came out in Fort Bend, findings of fact and conclusions of law. It came out uh, Monday, I believe, this week, and um, where the judge found that McGregor is entitled to a new trial because the prosecutor suppressed evidence that the witnesses had received a benefit for their testimony and that the state used false testimony in order to get their conviction in this case. Uh, we were talking about the three witnesses and the deals that they got and in exchange for their testimony, but each of them testified that they had not received a deal. So this is, we're talking, you know, years later on what's called habeas corpus um, a writ, the we're talking about years later after new evidence is developed and deals are uncovered that lawyers are back in court litigating. So they had the hearing earlier this year and the judge uh, released his findings uh, on Monday saying that the state had cheated to win. They withheld evidence, suppressed Brady information, uh, suppressed the deals, and then allowed the witnesses to 
falsely testify that they received no deal. Um, so now I want to get into where we were headed right when we got to the break. The conduct of the prosecutor, because it's really not the witness's fault. Uh, I mean, it is to some degree because they got on the stand and they gave false testimony. But as was told in the writ hearing, apparently these witnesses were told by the prosecutor, um, don't tell that you got a deal. So if you're asked if you got a deal, the answer is no. Um, and I think that goes to something we were talking about here uh, in the studio during the break that has become a culture within the district attorney's office, especially here in Harris County, um, to kind of play fast and loose with the rules, if you will. It's kind of a, a convict at all costs, cheat to win mentality. Um, you know, this is pretty slick if, if you ask me. You got the prosecutor saying, look, I didn't give any specific promise that you would to Gable. I didn't give any specific promise that she would, in fact, get paroled. I only told her that maybe I could send a letter on her behalf. Uh, look, I didn't cut any specific deal for Paxton. I only gave him an agreement that I would let the court know that he assisted me because, you know, he was facing this open plea of up to 45 years. And the prosecutor says, Shipley, that, you know what, I'll show up in court and I'll let the court know that you were helpful to me, even though I will not necessarily recommend that the judge give you credit for that. Kind of subject, kind of on the same subject line. Let me ask John this question. John, do you believe there's people in prison this day that are innocent that didn't commit the crime? Yes. And how does that happen, John? Can you no, explain how it happens? Any number of ways. It's uh, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know. Uh, and it can be bad investigation, bad prosecution. There, there's a host of ways that can happen, Earl. Could it and, be? Could it be witnesses that are promised? Um, a deal if, if their testimony is favorable against that person? Could be. Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. And that's kind of what we're getting at here. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're talking about uh, Gable. We're talking about Paxton. And then we've got this Osani who gets, says, you know, said, well, look, we didn't have a specific agreement with him either. We just told him, you know, look, if you'll help, if you help us, we'll help you. But there was no specific deal. So the prosecutor said, and the state argued in this hearing, that, as, that the state had no obligation to disclose these rewards, agreements, and understandings that would benefit the witness unless there was a true, firm promise, an actual quid pro quo, and an actual contract that was binding and put into place before the witness ever testified. In other words, the prosecutor said, you know what, as long as I'm just going to try to say a good word on his, half, on his behalf but not give him an exact deal, I don't have to tell defense counsel. This goes so far astray of what the law requires. Um, so I, I just, when I read this, it was shocking to me that the prosecutor would actually get up and say that. I, I don't know why I'm shocked. We've heard it time and time again. We heard it from Kelly Siegler in the Temple case. We heard her say, you know, if it's, I get it that there's Brady information, but said. if I don't believe it, I don't have to turn it over. Right. 
so you've got her making her own rules. You got Rob Fryer saying last week in the Headley case that, you know what, as long as it wasn't like a really firm deal, I don't have to worry about it. This wasn't the particular type of deal. Uh, and besides, if I had tried the case, I would have told the jury about the deal up front so it wouldn't have had to come down to the defense attorney knowing it. Uh, and then now you have, in this case, Beth Shipley saying that as long as the jury was told the witness had pending cases, she did not have to disclose to the defense any plan to tell a judge or prosecutor that the witness cooperated or that she expected that person to get some consideration in a lighter sentence. She doesn't have to tell them that as long as the jury knows the witness has a pending case. She also testified that even if it was her intent to reduce a witness's sentence from this 30 years down to seven years after they testified, she had no duty to disclose that because that was gonna come after the testimony and not before. She even went so far as to suggest, or not suggest, but to testify that she had not agreed to actually write a letter to the parole board for Gable before she testified, just told her, look, maybe I could do that. The best I could do is possibly write this letter. And I didn't say I would do it. It wasn't a promise. And I decided to do it after she testified. So it wasn't any big deal. There's no specific promise and I don't have to follow the rules. This is the part that is just, to me, shocking, absurd. It's the cheat at all costs, win at all costs mentality to get the conviction. We're going to play fast and loose with the rules, and we're going to come up with our own definition of how the rule works. And so it's been suggested, and I've heard this time and time again, and we've all talked about this before, this is a problem. It's a systemic problem. It's gone on again and again and again. And I'll say it's systemic and it's widespread, although I will qualify, it does not apply to every prosecutor. But we see it time and time again. And how do you stop it, John? How do you stop prosecutors well, from you, hiding? You stop it by, you make an example. You know, when we, uh, when you said that they had hearings on the record where the prosecution made assertions that no, there were no deals, there was nothing in place. You know, you think about that if you're over in family court or civil court and you make assertions like that to a judge, you can get hit with sanctions and attorney fees. And we also know that even when there's misconduct, everybody's loath to blow the whistle and take it down to Austin to the state bar or anything. Maybe if in if the criminal code adopted some of the civil codes, things where the judge can pop you for that, it'd stop. But again, uh, and based on my experience as a supervisor and having taken over what were te- deemed at the time as some dysfunctional units, public crucifixion is good for morale. And you're talking about a supervisor over the sheriff's department in that's, law enforcement. That's correct. Yeah. And, you know, when you take over a unit and you sit there and you see obvious misconduct where... You know, basically, the previous supervisors were retired on active duty, as they say. You find, you get you one that's an example, and, you know, I'm thinking of one downtown a prosecutor now that uh, basically got caught lying to a district court judge because when 
I made it clear to the judge what he had done. The judge ordered that he give the whole file, even his work product, which I don't know that you can do that. But he was so, so angry. So to me, you just, uh, you take a guy like that, who's probably been there eight, ten years now, and you fire him. See, and, and that's you the send thing. the message loud and clear. I don't care if this happened three years ago. This was not ethical or legal then, and it's not going to be tolerated now, and I'm not going to have people with that conduct in the past, um, you know, working for me. The analogy is if you went down to CarMax and they told you, well, this car's been wrecked a couple times, but it's, it's pretty good now. Same thing. Well, this guy used to hide the ball. He used to do this and that. But you know what? We've got a new DA, so he's going to straighten up. No, he's just going to get more careful. Well, and that's the thing. You know, you something that you hit on there, John, you said this, the example that you were given um, where you had an interaction with the uh, prosecutor just recently and the district court had to intervene and say, whoa, whoa, you know, let's, you're going to turn over that whole file. The You're not talking about a baby prosecutor who maybe didn't really know the rules or just got out of law school. You said this is an eight to ten year prosecutor. Yeah, and uh, this was actually about two years ago. But the fact of the matter is, you know, that guy doesn't need to be a prosecutor because if he didn't get it then, he doesn't get it now. Well, and that's the thing, too. Where we see these cases like Headley, like Temple, like uh, McGregor, these are where we find these writs of habeas corpus and we find this hidden evidence are generally in your more serious cases, generally in your murder cases and your capital murder cases because the stakes are higher, because the... uh, they have so many more appellate options than your run-of-the-mill case uh, because they're either maybe on death row or it's a capital. They're going to have certain extra protections, um, and, and they've just they're just going to get better review. In this but case, it was a capital. It was a capital. And a capital case that's non-death means that after the conviction, you're talking life in prison. Absolutely, um, and so you're you're talking high stakes for these defendants. So you get these this additional review, whether it's their families paid for a lawyer to review the case um, or or whether they've qualified for some sort of appointed counsel. Um, you know, this was a writ, so generally those are paid lawyers that are that are doing the work. But because the stakes are just so high in these, we you've got a lot more review going on, and that's where we're finding all of these um, Brady violations, these ethical violations. And where I was kind of headed with that, and I got a little off track, is the prosecutors trying these cases, murders, capital murders, aggravated robberies, these are not your baby prosecutors straight out of law school that might not truly understand the rules just yet. These are prosecutors that have been in the office, that have worked for years to elevate to the level that they're trusted with these types of cases. So generally, these are five to ten year prosecutors or or longer. So these are not these are people who who have experience. And what's sad is if they're doing that, that means they learned it along the way. And and these are your informal leaders, even though you have your command staff and your super chiefs and that prosecutors. The experienced prosecutors are the ones that are teaching the younger kids, but it's the experienced prosecutors that are hiding the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly. that's why it's a systemic problem. And that's why 
you take one of them and you lop them off at the ankles. Make an example. You have to. And you it have sounds, to. You know, some people may think it sounds harsh, but you have to well, remember. Well, it is harsh, but it's these, also a government employee that should be open well, and transparent, and we should see everything they're doing. Considering the consequences are people going to jail or having or a felony penalty. conviction or anything like that. Well, the, the consequences, an innocent person could be convicted of a crime they didn't commit, and also... On all three, uh, well, on two of the cases that you talked about, the courts uh, will probably order a new trial, a do-over. So that means that probably a, a murder case uh, takes anywhere from a week to two weeks to try uh, if it's not a capital case uh, or a capital seeking the death. And that's two weeks wasted. Well, and, it's so much more gotta, than two weeks wasted. Yeah, it's two weeks of trial wasted um, with all the trial resources, but it's taken a year for that case, year or more, for that case to ever even get to trial. So you have court resources, prosecutorial resources, law Good enforcement point. resources, everything tie, uh, tied up in there so that you have all these resources tied up so that you know, it's costing hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this case ready to go to trial. And then it, you know, two, three, four years, ten years later, you get a do-over? Imagine the victim's family saying, prosecutor, you did what? And you hid evidence and we have to start from scratch now? And that's a collateral damage that nobody ever considers sometimes. How tough it is on the family to pick the scab off and do this stuff all over again and go through this. I mean, uh, we we did one where, you know, the guy's guilty, but because a detective made a joke down at the courthouse, it got flipped in federal court. Yeah. And he was convicted on a retrial. But the fact is, it delays everything another 10 years. And yeah. And think about it. If, it, you know, if this person's really guilty and they get a do-over 10 years later, now you've got the state scrambling, witnesses scrambling to get their act together again, find all the evidence, find all the witnesses, get everything, make sure, you know, everything's still available and ready to go. You're going to have to try that case again from scratch. And now you're going to try it with warts on it. Right. It made, they weren't even there in the first place. You know, I, I just, this case so infuriated me when I read it um, just because you've got the prosecutor saying well I didn't really say it was a true promise so I didn't have to disclose it well I didn't think about it because I wasn't going to do it till after you know it's just it's making excuses for hiding the ball it's well, making whether, excuses to convict at all costs whether you have a written contract or an agreement in writing doesn't change the deal that it's it's an agreement. You can call it anything you want. It's an agreement. It's still an agreement. How, Absolutely. How many, uh, how many prosecutors help you out while you're uh, while you're trying the case? They help your uh, your witnesses out. None. So um, I think a promise from a prosecutor, someone that has a lot of power, that they're going to try to help you, uh, that in itself is incentive. It, it truly is. This is, you know, it's just something that the prosecutor carries so much power, so much authority. When they say to a witness, 
hey, I'll help you if you help me, you better believe that witness has every incentive, every motive to lie, to embellish, to add on, to puff up the story, because the more help they give the prosecutor, the more help they get in their own case. Well, the, 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 the better their testimony, the, the better deal they're going to get, especially well, yeah. if they don't, so if it's an open deal, good. if it's but, an open deal, yeah. like uh, prosecutors said in this case, then um, then obviously the, the better your testimony is, the better your deal is going to be. Absolutely. Create the best testimony possible, and all of a sudden you get the best deal possible. Uh, you know, so you can read more about this story, if you like, uh, over on my blog over at Fault Lines. It's called the Texas Trifecta. We've got three prosecutors now in just a short period of time. Uh, that's why I called it the Trifecta. Three prosecutors, three counties, three witnesses, three different judges finding that all these prosecutors cheated. Um, so take a look at it if you if you want a little more information or want to read some backstory. And we're going to get to some information on uh, the Harris County Jail and a little bit with the election, the, with the Sheriff's Department changing. Right after the break, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back with you in just a few minutes. Again, this is Legally Speaking with Music and Music. This is Joanne Music with Legally Speaking with Music and Music. Uh, we're here in the studio today talking about criminal justice issues. We're here every Thursday from 2 to 3. We've been talking about some prosecutor prosecutorial misconduct that's here local. And I want to jump a little bit over into a, a, a new topic. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, Ron Hickman, who apparently just was defeated uh, in the uh, election Tuesday and will be replaced by Gonzalez. Apparently, Ron Hickman, our sh local sheriff, had asked the state jail commission to allow him to place about 200 inmates uh, in plastic cots on the floor due to the overcrowding in the jail system. Um, and this is something that, you know, I don't find horribly offensive that we might have somebody sleep on a cot, uh, but what I find offensive about it is our jail is so overcrowded, we can't process people in fast enough, we can't process them out fast enough, we can't get our bond schedule in order, we can't get pretrial bonds done, we've got the prosecutor's office filing, you know, two, three, four, five cases on somebody instead of picking the best in the biggest case. We're dragging stuff out. Harris County is notoriously had a problem with jail overcrowding that we just can't get a handle on. As much as we talk about uh, criminal justice reform and as much as Devin Anderson throughout her three years as district attorney has set up these diversion programs and whatnot, everybody keeps saying we're working on fixing the jail problem. We're working on fixing this overcrowding. But instead of fixing it, we're asking for more temporary beds. And not only did he ask for today, can we put about 200 inmates on the floor, uh, but we want the Texas Commission on Jail Standards to extend the existing variance uh, of 100, uh, 580 bunk beds to add in another 192 
cot-like bunks known as what they call low riders, um, plastic cots that'll be on the floor. Um, so they're asking for more and more and more instead of just reducing the jail population. Well, we've talked about this in the past, and again, you can issue citations on Class A and B misdemeanors, whether yeah, let's, it's let's weed or theft or Let's whatever. talk about that for just a second, because like you said, we've, we've said that before. Um, Texas allows what we call, just generally, cite and release. Issue a ticket, a citation, to appear in court on minor, nonviolent offenses. Right. And allow the you know police officer just issue the citation and send the defendant, the accused, on his way. There is not; it is not required that every single person be physically booked into the jail, processed, and booked out if they make a bond. So we're tying the jail up with thousands, about eighty percent, seventy to eighty percent of our jail at any one given day are pre-trial detainees, meaning they have not been convicted of anything, yet they're sitting in the jail because they're processing or because they're waiting on a bond or because they can't make a bond. Right. And and that's just, you know, the excuse from the district attorney's office is, well, you know, the, the computer system won't handle it. Yeah, that, that, that was an astounding to me that the answer, that the law has been for years now, you can issue a ticket rather than book them in the jail. But the answer, what, five years, six years after that law passed, the answer is, oh, I'm sorry, our computers aren't smart enough to figure that out. And I personally don't see how you can't do that. I mean, you just have a clerk at the JP court or whatever enter it on the docket. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like, hard. think about when you have a felony where they're going to get rid of it because they know it's not a felony and they're going to refile as a misdemeanor and they give your client a summons. It's the same thing. Yeah. You don't have to be arrested before you appear in court. And there's lots of people every day, uh, people with ties to the community, professionals, people, long-term residents, good jobs, bad jobs, but, you know, never been in trouble before. Not a flight and, risk. Right. They're not going anywhere. And yet they have to go post a bond, and it's you know you can't you can't help but wonder, you know you always follow the money. Who makes the donations to the judges? Bonds, right? Money. And it's just like <laughs> it's just like getting to interlocks. When you're arrested, first offense, you're under point one five. DWI. Right. You are not required to have an interlock, but there are certain courts that require an interlock on every uh, person charged in that court. With DWI. And you have to, and you know, of course, when you have some of the interlock providers sponsoring, quote, judicial training and (laughs) throwing, uh, you know, seminars and hotels and stuff, you know, it's it's like anything else. You just follow the money. Uh, You know, the whole problem with uh, bonds and tickets and all that kind of stuff is, Nobody wants to work as far as actually sit there and listen to why this guy's a flight risk, why we should deviate from the standard bond schedule. Why, my God, uh, you know, I might have to uh, one weekend a month go pull uh, bond duty or have to do this or that. You know, and if the judges don't want to do it, then don't be a judge. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's true right there. If they don't want to do it, don't be a public servant. But I will say this, you know, and and 
that comment applies more to the misdemeanor courts than to the felony courts uh, because those judges do get stuck on the weekends reading all these writs, reading all these appeals and stuff like that because for the most part, people in the misdemeanor courts, except when you've got somebody that's got a lot of money in charge of the DWI or something, that stuff's never going to get appealed. Right. So they're not spending the time like that. But irregardless, uh, they should be entitled to some type of bond hearing. If you have to put them in custody, <clears throat> entitled to a bond hearing, and uh, hear why they're so dangerous. And, of course, you know, I've always uh, believed that we deviate from Chapter 14, the arrest without warrant, where in Harris County, you know, somebody says, well, he spray-painted my fence. And they call DA. Well, he says he knows him by name and face. Uh, will you take charges? They say, yeah, and they arrest him. How's that a felony or breach of the peace? Yeah. That, you have to go get the, a warrant. That's the problem. We don't really follow <coughs> the law, I think, in a lot of respects uh, and require a warrant for the arrest. We just file it as if, well, yeah. if the DA said they'll take yeah. charges, we just go pick them up and, and file it. Um, but let me get back to the jail just a little bit. Um, you know, according to the Chronicle reports on this, um, the sheriff... The, the jail complex in Harris County is designed to hold 9,400 inmates. Right. But we've already requested variances in the past for these cots and whatnot. And so the commission, the jail commission, has upped our capacity to 10,162 inmates. So something designed to hold 9,000 is holding 10,000. Okay. Um, so it's extra thousand. And the sheriff noted that the county already pays $550,000 each month to house more than 400 inmates in other county jails outside of Harris County to avoid exceeding the maximum capacity. Now, I'm all about uh, uh, ex you know trying to avoid exceeding that maximum capacity, but we're full to the brim. We're shipping them out to other counties to sit, to sit um, and, you know, we're shuttling them back and forth for court dates and whatnot. Um, that's a lot of expense. And $550,000 a month just because we don't want to let people out of jail bef when they're not convicted of a crime? Well... Your low-level misdemeanors? And it, that's we, a we thing. We need it's to hold some them of in the, jail? It's some of the low-level, nonviolent misdemeanors. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about robbers, rapists, murderers. No. Nobody's saying let them out of jail. What we're talking about here is you've got a ton of people in the jail on misdemeanor marijuana, ton of people in the jail on shoplifting, misdemeanor shoplifting, uh, you know, misdemeanor DWI, misdemeanor, um, you know, uh, uh, trying to think, resisting arrest even or whatnot. We're talking about low-level offenses, non-violent offenses, and we're holding those people in jail. Drug offenses, um, state jail felony trace cases, tons of those sitting in the, the county jail serving out a sentence basically before they've ever been convicted of anything, before we even have lab reports back. You know, that do you know, you, is this something that our sheriff can actually address? I, I want to kind of no, get to that. Well, and, and here's the problem. And first thing, um, the sheriff, unless he's actually come up through the sheriff's department, and obviously the last two sheriffs and the soon-to-be-sworn-in sheriff have not, 
Meaning well, they haven't worked in the department before, right, but they're right. going to come in and try to manage right. it. They have no idea what they're getting into. Because if you, every time you start in the sheriff's office, whether you promote to sergeant, lieutenant, whatever, you go back to jail. Because that's a new guy's job. But if they've never turned keys, they're never going to understand it. So they come in, especially like uh, Sheriff Garcia, and I, I hope not Sheriff Gonzalez, but I can see it. They think, wow, I'm, I'm in charge of this big law enforcement agency. And yeah, unincorporated Harris County is 2 million people. It's like the size of Phoenix. You got a lot on your plate. But the jail consumes you. The jail's nothing but lawsuits, the Department of Justice, all that. You come in and think you're running stuff, all you're running is a jail. And that's where all your friction with the sheriff or with the commissioner's court is. Because when you do try to go down and get any improvements or any more staff, they shut you down because here's the other thing. Nobody cares. When you sit there and tell people, oh, my God, they're going to put you on a low-rider plastic cot in a jail, people are going to go, well, Well, yeah, the, the taxpayer doesn't When I was care. in the Army, I slept in a hole. They'll yeah. tell you, that's not bad. The taxpayer, to be fair, the taxpayer doesn't care right. because the taxpayer thinks in general— right. Well, I mean, he right. shouldn't have stole that candy bar if he didn't want to be in jail. Right. But here's <laughs> here's another place they haven't attacked that I think they should, and that is part of the things with staffing and inmates is 1 to 48. How that ratio was determined, I don't know. But they're saying if you've got 200 inmates, you have to have five deputies. So, And they look at inmates all through the system in that, and it's kind of like, well, you know, on night shift, do you really need 1 to 48 to supervise them? And, uh, you know, so are some of our wounds self-inflicted? Because they used to run it without problems well, I think with a, a lot fewer I think guys. a lot of it's self-inflicted. And I know you want to say something here, Earl. Well, the I, I just wanted to correct something. When uh, when both of y'all say that, that the citizens don't care uh, because they're not worried about it, but every single day, when I talk to potential clients, I find out, oh my God, you can't believe how bad I was mistreated when Absolutely. I was thrown in the jail. And yeah, I'm talking about executives. I'm yeah. talking about people that uh, that are well off. In You're society, absolutely right, and, and I they say do people, care. I, they do care. They care once they get involved right. in it and they see it from the inside. When they're or never, their family. or their family, that's what I'm saying. Once they get involved in the system somehow with yeah. themselves or family, then they really start to care. But prior to that, right. there's a there's a lack of concern because they just don't see it. No. Um, we've come to the end of our hour here, uh, so I want to kind of just wrap things up, remind our listeners that we are here every Thursday from two to three p.m. Live. We're happy to take your calls. We're happy to take your questions. You can also hit us up on uh, all social media, Twitter at LegalSpeakMM, uh, Facebook Legally Speaking, or uh, even Instagram. Send us your questions, comments, uh, get with us. We'll answer those on air if we can. We'll uh, happy to talk to you. Call us. We're here every single Thursday from 2 to 3, and we look forward to seeing you next week.